This is Functionally Literate Radio. Listening to Functionally Literate Radio. Good morning. I'm Jared Sylvia, host of the Functionally Literate Reading Series. And I'm Ryan Rivas, publisher of Borough Press. Hi. Good morning. Good morning, Jared. So, our guest today on the show is Matthew Salasis, author most recently of the novel The Hundred Year Flood. He'll be reading alongside Kristen Arnett this Saturday at our first Functionally Literate of the New Year of 2016. Salasis is also the author of I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying, a wonderful book, uh, Different Racisms, and The Last Repatriate, which is actually the first book I ever read of his, and I really, really kind of fell in love with his writing through that. Um, He has written about adoption, race, and parenting for NPR's Code Switch, The New York Times, Motherlode, Salon, The Toast, The Millions, The Center for Asian American Media, The Rumpus, and The Good Men Project, among others. I recently spoke to Salasis over Skype. This is a recording that I made of our conversation. So I'm just going to um, basically start by welcoming you uh, to uh, the show and thanking you for joining us. So we'll jump right in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very uh, you're very uh, welcome for having you. I'm really glad uh, yeah. to <laughs> really glad to have you on the show uh, to talk about this, and we're we're really looking forward to having you come to Orlando to share your work. Um, so, the Hundred Year Flood, your most recent book. Well, people are calling it your debut novel. Uh, but but you're you have a, a collection that's kind of a novel in short stories, right? Yeah, it's a novel in um, flash fiction, I guess you'd say. Yeah, one page chapters. Yeah, well, that's I think it's really interesting the the kind of way that people differentiate the you know if a novel is told in sort of vignettes or snippets versus you know sort of a, a running narrative, how it becomes this very different animal. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even the <laughs> marketing the the flash fiction as a novel it's all kind of marketing right that you right you know that could have been a novella um or it could have been a collection but uh you know people like to buy novels and yeah. people like to buy debut novels so it's nice to have uh two of them i guess <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and and i think people like the the sweeping novel right the sort of like epic grand narrative which right. Of course, the Hundred Year Flood is definitely in that in that school of this sort of like, you know, epic narrative. Thanks. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess I, yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. Though I, I, to me, it seems like a kind of a, a smaller story uh, within a in the kind of context of a, a large flood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's an interesting point. I, you know, the the idea of the sort of work of nature is maybe what, for me at least, makes it feel uh, epic in that sense. Uh, when when you've got these sort of like ineffable natural forces, you know, um, colliding with the smaller concerns of of people. Right. All of these all of these things outside of your control. I, I think yeah. um, that was a big thing for me. Uh, you know, to explore in the book and. 
it's been a large part of my life, I think. Interesting. Um, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm curious to kind of get into how forces outside of life have, have kind of intruded for you. Uh, forces outside of your control, I mean. Yeah, well, so I'm a, I'm a Korean adoptee, so right. um, when I was two and a half, I was um, moved from an orphanage to uh, Connecticut on a, on a plane. Um, this was before parents came and picked up their kids, so ah. um, you know, I flew with some somebody who was just there to accompany me, and I met my parents in the airport and um, started a completely different life. Um, and I'm not sure even how I got into the orphanage, so there have been kind of my life started with a bunch of things that were really outside of my control. I see. Um, you know, not that I, most people's lives kind of start with things outside of their control. Right. Uh, but maybe not to that much of a, uh, there's usually not that large break in between. Um, actually, um, my, my wife went to a, a fortune teller once and was told that, uh, she hates when I tell the story, but she's, <laughs> <laughs> she was told that I was, um, that I was supposed to be dead and that I was supposed to have died when I was two. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, it's, he didn't know anything about me at this point. Um, and then he said, well, I guess he's alive, right, because she's coming to ask about me. And if I'm alive, then I'm either in America or Australia. Wow. That's yeah, I mean, that, it kind of, it's interesting, but it also makes it feel like it's even more outside. Your, like it's even, it's some other, even farther outside force. Wow, yeah. I mean, that's it's wonderfully mystical and kind of kind of spooky but uh but yeah that's that's fantastic well i i mean i think it's it's often a very dangerous territory to get into reading too much autobiography yes yes into a work of fiction but there are some pretty you know deep connections between your life and the life of the character in the hundred year flood tea um obviously you share the um, Korean adoption uh, aspect of your life um, and also the city of Prague where of course you taught um, yeah, and, I lived there, yeah. yeah I lived there for a year uh, in 2004 right so two years after the book takes place mm. I mean um, you know I'm, I'm, I wonder I wonder like uh, you know how you conceptualized out of your experiences in life um, and, and how you sort of, um, you know, inflated him into into his universe. Like, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'm asking is what's what's the balance for you when you're creating a character, um, you know, what, what you take from your own personal experience and put into their experience? He's probably about... Um I don't know, maybe 30% my experience. Yeah. There's, when I was, um, when I started the book, T was a, a character in the original draft, but he um, was a, a white American, um, and he had a, his best friend was uh, a Korean American. Um, and later, I kind of realized that they were just like two halves of the same person. Interesting. Um, and so I combined them into one character, and the the, the Korean American person, they I mean they're both kind of based off of me, but uh, maybe more so the other character. And mm. so, um, but they both shared my situational uh, positionings. Like that, you know, we they were both in Prague. They were both Americans. They were both, you know, so they had a lot of things in common with me at the time. 
Um, and so a lot of the kind of, if you look at the situation that they're in, then those situations are very similar to the situation I was in when I was in Prague. Uh, but some of the other aspects are a little bit different, I think. Yeah. Personality-wise and stuff. Yeah, it's it's very hard. Obviously, like I said, you know, we if we if we take every single character an author has ever created as being yeah. autobiographical, we we really run into some dangerous territory. You know, um, but it's uh, fun, right? It's fun to it's fun to try to pull at those threads. Yeah, I mean, it deconstructive tendencies of the modern criticism, right? But uh, but uh, yeah. So um, I I read in another interview that. Uh, this was the first time you had had a main character who was Asian American. Is, is am I remembering that correctly? Um, no. So this was I, I started this novel. I screwed that up then. <laughs> no, that's no, okay. I I started the novel uh, at a time when I, I mean, so the kind of supporting character was this Korean American mm-hmm. friend. Um, when I still wasn't really writing books that centered on an Asian American experience. Um, or, or anything that was centering on that experience and uh, it wasn't that was the year before I was in Prague the year before I went to Korea mm. and it wasn't until I went to Korea that I actually started writing stories with Asian people at the center um, mm. and probably that led in some way to realizing that these two characters were really one character I see because I mean yeah there, there's a lot of dualisms in, in the character's life, even even as this character exists in the book, you know, in its current final state. I mean, I mean, there's the dualism of America and Prague. There's the dualism of being um, adopted and yet part of a family. Uh, you know, the dualism of the father and mother of of the sort of like romantic interests. You know, all all these all these kind of hugging forces the uh, one of the things I wanted to play with was this the way that I so I spent a year in Prague teaching English and um, it's kind of a magical job you know like full time yeah. was 20 20 hours a week <laughs> uh, and it was mostly just these one-on-one conversations with people in various companies and so I would take the, the train over the, to the company and I would sit with these people for an hour and talk about whatever um, we could and then kind of talk about general things that they could do to improve their English. Uh, and sometimes they had topics for me, like sometimes I would talk about, one person wanted to talk about uh, airplane English because mm. he wanted to learn how to be a pilot. Right. Um, but mostly people just had no idea what they wanted to talk about, so I would just talk about what I was interested in. and. Um, I started getting people to tell me the myths of Prague mm. uh, and superstitions of Prague. So that's a large feature in the book. And, it w- and there's, the book opens with this kind of list of uh, myths and superstitions that he learns in Prague, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, like the things that he learned in Prague. But it really was uh, a large part of what I learned in Prague. <laughs> wow. um, and I thought I, they were just so fascinating. And I got really interested in these, these legends that I would hear uh, told two different ways. You know, so like one of the central legends in the book is this um, clockmaker who creates the the orloi uh, that you have seen probably in any picture of Prague um, in San Town Square, and it's that big astronomical clock. Gotcha. Yeah. And the person who made it uh, was was blinded after he had made it, so that he, he couldn't make another clock like it anywhere else. 
Um, but then there's the myth like kind of splits into these two parts where the clock breaks at some point um, and it's broken for a long time um, and the one of the telling says that he is brought in to fix the clock uh, even blind and he kind of fixes it in his blindness the thing that he was like blinded for making uh, and then the other telling says that the reason the clock broke was was because of him that he kind of throws himself into the gears and um, kills himself and uh, and that's why the clock breaks in the first place so uh, and, I, and then I started hearing more and more myths like this like there's other this other myth of, myth of this woman there was um, a time when Prague was in a war between men and women. Yeah. There's this women's army, um, and one of the women was told to set a trap for um, the, the, some man in the other army. Uh, and the, one of the myths says that she falls in love with him and um, kind of and kills herself over the, over this uh, betrayal. And one is just that she. You know, she just simply betrays him and, and kills all his men. Um, and so it's this, like there's all these really interesting ways that the myths split in two. And I thought that that spoke to the kind of dual natures that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I can really see that. And and something else to to uh, I'm thinking about as you're as you're mentioning this is there is also an undercurrent of trauma that seems to run into this dualism that he experiences. I mean. You know, there's obviously the trauma of his uh, quest for personal identity, but then there's this sort of like larger trauma of uh, coming back to what we started talking about, you know, these sort of like natural forces and forces that are outside of the sphere of our control. Um, and and I, as you mentioned, these legends, I mean, they seem to have an undercurrent of sort of like trauma and violence to them as well. Yeah, I love that comment. There's this sort of idea that right it's do we create the trauma in our lives or are we somehow uh or, or is it created for us and are we able to escape that or um move away from that i mean i think in, in a way those myths are kind of circling around those questions too yeah definitely um yeah, it's, I, I i love the idea of uh, mythology as it as it comes into the sphere of our daily experience and um i i think that in a sense, uh, I hope this isn't too big of a reach, but when I was reading the book, I mean, there is definitely a, um, this is a word I've seen used over and over again to describe it, it's dreamlike. Um, and I, I mean, I think that that's a wonderful a wonderful way to describe it, and I, I see it as a, as a positive view of it. But um, in a sense, you know, um, the dreaminess of the book, maybe that relates also to the mythological nature of some of the things that are happening in it. Um, I yeah, think, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, you can't take anything for granted. Like, that was a feeling that I and, and other people I was with in Prague really felt from the city, that it's it was such an old city, and so many things were kind of around, had been around for so long, and yet people always had this kind of sense that all of these terrible things could happen that like the cities would survive but that terrible things could happen at any point right the, yeah. the reason that the city had survived was all of these armies had invaded it and then once they got in there realized it was so beautiful that they couldn't destroy the city like they would come in with plans to like raise the city to the ground and then and then they would just be struck by the beauty and they'd preserve it and then you know raise other cities to the ground 
Um, and you had this sense, too, that the history was alive in that way and that people knew um, and that it had kind of informed the, uh, you know, kind of personality or, or certain things that people, the culture of, this, of the city and the residents. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to, to speak to that, and uh, uh, there's a moment in the book where, um, you know, we've got this, this narrative about the tree, right? And mm-hmm. so you have T climbing up the tree to, you know, as a sort of like rescue effort. And, and in a sense, like that scene sounds almost like something that could come from, uh, from mythology or from legend. Oh yeah, it, can, it actually comes from a, a Grace Paley story. Oh, interesting. I guess and, I didn't. I missed that reference, but uh, I'm glad to know that it, it it is a reference actually. It's um, I don't know if it's a reference or not, but it, oh, it, not the kernel for me was um the story Faith in the Tree for mm. Faith in the Tree, um and Grace Paley has this kind of alter ego named Faith, and there's a whole story where she's just like sitting in this tree. Um, I just thought it was so interesting that uh, like it's a place you. It can kind of think that you would escape into, but there's only one place to go from there. Right? Then you just come down, and you're just right back in your in your life again. Um, and so that idea was really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I, and I, I love I love the way it plays out in the book, um, and and also the idea of of mud and and the sort of um, you know the the place again. It just has so much texture. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, uh, another thing I wanted to talk about: the idea of floods. Um, I think there, in the various like myths and legends about floods, you know, in in one sense, floods are seen as this sort of like finality, destructive force. But in other in other ways, that are always seen as a kind of um, agent of the cycle of destruction and renewal um how does that interplay with the flood in the book or the the symbolic flood in the book if you will sure i mean i guess i think of it i tried hard to keep the flood from being um or from operating on a on the level of symbol Mm. first um and, and that even for me i wanted to keep it away from operating on the level of symbol from my perspective though i because of because of the way that floods are so symbolic for anyone coming to the book, right? That you kind of read into it no matter what. Um, and so I tried to stick to uh, what actually happened in that flood in 2002. And I read a lot of kind of um, first-person accounts and then news reports and um, any videos I could find at the time of of what the flood looked like, how high it was at certain times, what kind of damage it did. Uh, and then I try to use those actual events um, to as conflict for T and Kaka, or who get stuck in it, um, knowing you know uh, also that the, the kind of the reader will bring into that all of those um, all of those cultural things that go along with floods, and, and I think you could read it in, in many different ways that T is kind of getting stuck in this in this force that is going to reshape him no matter what and it is supposed to be a kind of agent of change right. um, and what he wants to do at that time uh, the, what he really wants to do is kind of resist that change right. he's trying very hard not to change at a time when nature is is telling him he has to do something completely different hmm. and so I mean yeah 
I, I love I love what you mentioned. I mean, I mean the idea that y- you can't escape the symbolism of a flood, but you also can't escape the reality of the flood, and and that's kind of that, that's very wrapped up in this character for sure. Um, another aspect of of maybe maybe related to this is you have this recurring image with T and um I, I i can't say that i'm going to quote this exactly right but he he often talks about his cup filling up yes yeah and, uh yeah mm-hmm. go ahead oh well uh, yeah i i get to say i i utterly empathized with that idea because the idea of you know emotions or um uh, oh, emotional being emotionally overwhelmed as a sort of literal water welling up inside of you, if you will. Um, I, I think that's something that very emotional people, or maybe just everybody, can can empathize with. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, like my wife will sometimes say this thing where she like point to where on her body her anger is. Like right. she's like, it's up to like here right now. Yeah. And I thought thought that was like a funny way of thinking about it. That. You would, that it's just like filling up from her feet upward um, and then when it gets to like head level you know like it's just going to explode and um and I so I, I mean I think I have that experience a lot where um especially where you kind of experience these little microaggressions or other frustrations in your life and um things and things that bother you or annoy you and, and they kind of keep adding up and you don't really react to all of them right you can't like go around being a jerk all the time <laughs> Uh, so they kind of build up inside of you, and then at a certain point, like you, you can't kind of hold on to those forever. And and I, th- I thought of T as a kind of person who would let those things build up too too high, and then just kind of like, you know, throw himself into action. Um, and for him, it's a kind of emptying out of that container, which is inevitably just going to keep filling up again and again. Mm. Yeah. And, and the word container is is yeah that's the word uh, I was uh, saying the wrong word but um, but yeah I, I think I think that's a really interesting perspective that I, I hadn't really considered on the character just just how how it essentially uh, leads him to jump into action when when he feels that kind of uh, emotional overwhelming uh, sense um, yeah wow wow I really um I, I maybe I haven't said this but I I love your prose. Thank you. Uh, it's it's both um, compelling and deeply poetic, and and I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. But I guess I guess maybe um, maybe in my own experience, I tend to think of um, very poetic prose as as lingering, um, whereas whereas this piece, I think, it charges forward even as it as it um, you know. Um, deeply explores image and moment Uh, yeah i'd like the idea of somebody being able to kind of you know like one of the things i like about books and i listen to a lot of audiobooks now and it and i I sometimes feel a loss in this way is that you kind of read at a pace where you're you'll read it you'll read very quickly and then you'll stop and you'll kind of appreciate something and you'll think about it for a little while and then you pick it up again Mm -hmm. uh in the audiobooks, you kind of just keep going and going and going, and I also like that too. And I and I like the idea that you could kind of read for both, right? That you could be propelled and and keep going if you wanted to, or you could kind of stop and think about you know lines and sentence level things if you're that kind of reader. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears slightly now um, in our conversation and talk a little bit about another aspect of the book, which I think is. Um, 
very interesting. And it's this idea of art and politics, which of course is very deeply ingrained into the fabric of this book. I mean, I mean, you have uh, the idea of art as revolutionary form, and uh, it very quite literally plays out in the book. And I guess, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to accuse you of of preaching <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but but I, I wonder is is this enough of is there enough of a conversation happening about the interplay between art and politics right now in say in the United States? Oh, I don't know if I could speak to that. <laughs> yeah. But just personally, I think that you know it's pretty hard for me to separate them. I guess that yeah. um, so much art is political. Um, so much of who we are is a, is a kind of politics, and um, and who and what we're trying to be within a sort of social socially imposed politics. Right is 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 a large part of the book in a way that he has this kind of identity forced upon him or you know given to him. And he's trying to find, you know, his own identity within that. And that's something that I think, you know, we, we go through in our lives all the time that um, I have this professor now who says, like, that he spent all of his adult life trying to unlearn the things that he was that he learned as a child, right? Socially learned as a child. Um, you learn to act in a certain way or to believe women are in one way, men are in one way or, you know, certain kinds of people are certain kinds of things. And, and then you get to a point where you start trying to unlearn that. Right. Um, and stories are such a, an important part of that, and art is such an important part of that. Uh, and so, um, to my mind, there's this kind of... Pavel, Pavel Picasso is trying to kind of use art to claim some... put his, you know, put a kind of check claim on, on what was going on at that time when uh, so much of what, what Prague was was superimposed by... Um, Russian communism, and um, T at the end of the book is 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 starting to write stories in a way that you know it's it's a way of kind of telling his own story um, when he hasn't been able to kind of do that so far in the book, and and art is a can be a really important way of of finding the space to tell your own story. I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah, absolutely, and and I, I mean, I, I, what I what I love about the character Pavel is, you know, that he has, you know, done this huge thing of of influencing people, you know, um, sort of past an era of of communism, which you know, in the minds of you know him and, and his, his compatriots was you know utterly detrimental to the place and maybe part of that same fabric of tragedy um and yet here he is in the era after and in a, in a way his his sort of meaning his his message has become a little um muddled or or a little challenged yeah he stopped changing i mean i think that's the trap, right? That we right. can we can think that if we change enough, uh, or that we change who we are, that that's the end, right? We find we find ourselves, and um, you know that's a very common trope in literature and and, and many things where you f- you feel like you f- at the end you find yourself, but that's really not like where the story is over. Um, and that was something I was trying to play with with both Pavel and T. Who kind of T at the end is really just starting upon a journey, and Pavel believes that he's going to finish a journey or or 
believes that the journey is continuing when it's the the path that he's on is already kind of stopped uh, and so he's not continuing to change and and now he's in this sort of stasis uh, where he has a set identity and he isn't able to kind of conceive of himself in a different way uh, it's a it's a very powerful I mean the cycles you know arcing through this work definitely are are coming back and forth and uh, kind of you know, um, uh, superimposed over each other. So it's uh, it's really wonderfully interwoven in that way. <laughs> um, well, uh, Matt Salasis, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk to me today. Thank uh, you. I think I really enjoyed this and uh, really looking forward to uh, having you here in Orlando on Saturday. Me too. Okay, right. Okay.